You see a homeless man um, outside a tube station. I guess many of you see it on, on a regular basis. Uh, he's cold. He's hungry as the weather gets colder. He, he, he's poor. Uh, the situation seems hopeless. Now, what is that man's greatest need? Go to the other end of the spectrum. Bill Gates. I, I think he's one of the richest men in the world. I think he's worth like 55, 60 billion dollars now. You know, surely that man needs nothing. He needs only to you know, spend whatever he wants and accumulate whatever he wants with that vast wealth. But what is Bill Gates' greatest need? As you go to work tomorrow, I guess you'll pass loads of people and faces, you know, whether it's in the coffee shop if you get your latte or as you get on the train or you know, on that crammed ch- train and tube or bus or car, wherever you are. You'll see numerous people you're, as you get into the office. You'll see faces that you know, but you, you'll see so many people, won't you? What is their greatest need? The, the person who works beside you. What is their greatest need? Well, if you're thinking back to that homeless man, if you were thinking something like oh, his greatest need is food, shelter, security, if you're thinking that, I think you're wrong. Now, if you're thinking for Bill Gates, you know, uh, he probably greatest need is to be happy. He's got a big burden of all that money. Satisfaction in the distribution of his wealth to conquer the AIDS epidemic in Africa, which is one of his big things at the moment. Surely that's his greatest need. If you're thinking that, I think you're wrong. And if you said of your co-workers, if you're thinking that their greatest need is success, job stability in the financial climate at the moment, maybe a little semi-detached overlooking Wandsworth Common, in a nice kind of positive bank account. If you're thinking that, I think you're wrong. What is man's greatest need? I've put a little point down there as an introduction. Our problem is that I think all too often we look to the outside, don't we? To the veneer of our lives. To the transient things. uh, Money. Our health. Or our illness. Or relationships. Or our lack of relationships. But lingering in us all, I guess, somewhere is an awareness that those things are not the real issue. I guess many of you have read this book. It's a few years back now. The Kite Runner. Many of you have read that. It's a very popular kind of number one book. The central character in that book was a, a guy called Amir. And he grows up in this privileged surroundings of Afghanistan. His best friend Hassan was the, the household servant's son. And um, they do everything together. They're always playing. But Hassan always looks after this little lad, uh, Amir. He does his chores. He, he protects him. But when they were about 12, Hassan for once gets into trouble, you know the story, and he's getting beaten in. And and Amir walks around the corner to see his best chum getting beaten in, and he runs away scared. And the rest of the book deals with how um, he deals with the guilt of that. The guilt of running away, of seeing his best friend in trouble and doing nothing. He tries all sorts of ways to get rid of this guilt in his life. He blames Hassan at some times and that wrecks the relationship, doesn't it? Uh, and and he, um, 
He tries to convince himself it doesn't matter because he's a, a lower caste, you know, a, a lower segment of, of society. He's only a servant. He tries to, uh, later in life, to purge the guilt by adopting an orphan child. But he concludes to himself later on in his years, it's wrong what they say about the past, about how you can bury it. Because the past always claws its way out. See, we can deny our past, try to justify our past, and attempt to make up for the past with all sorts of good little things that we do in our lives. But no matter what we do, our past and our guilt from the past will always claw its way back from what it has been buried under in our lives. Oh, it will play in our minds, it will haunt us, and ultimately the Bible tells us it will destroy us. You see, I think what we're going to see tonight is the solution to that kind of guilt. Uh, Our sin, the Bible describes it as, and the guilt of that sin. For all of us here tonight, that, you see, is our greatest need. But more importantly, what I hope we will begin to develop tonight is how we ought to view all of those people around us, at our workplaces, at the coffee shop, and to begin to understand what their greatest need is. What is man's greatest need? Well, let's, let's begin to look in this passage and see how Jesus demonstrates what a greatest need is. You'll see it in point one I put down there in verses one and two. The priority is the forgiveness of our sin. Follow with me if you can in verse one and two. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. Firstly, let's just try and get ourselves inside the story a bit. Because I think you can sometimes sanitise it with 21st century kind of uh, thinking. Take away the the availability of the, the medical care that you know, the social care that you know. Add a cultural shunning and the prejudice that would come from being a, a paralysed man. There are also psychological difficulties, but, but added to that are all the physical things which are quite obvious. But they're you know, exaggerated in those times. Yeah, there's no wheelchairs around. There's no tarmac roads to wheel a wheelchair around on. And, and also the, the, the huge heat and humidity of the, of the area. Massive things, physically. Oh, so we get the situation, the paralysed man is, is sitting at home, uh, one day picks up the Times newspaper and he starts reading, he sees that Jesus is in, uh, around and he sees a, you know, Jesus, this teacher um, and healer with authority, just to pick up some of the you know, Matthew 8 stuff, you know, that's the headline story and he, he says, oh, I'll get my mates around, he brings his mates around and he says, look, you must take me to see this man, Jesus, and they begin to carry him there. Look what it says. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. You can imagine, can't you, the friends of the paralyzed man at this point, who had probably sweated to carry this, this man to Jesus, who had probably given up their precious time to carry this man to Jesus. You can probably think at that moment, they, they were sort of going, Whoa, God, forgiven? I I, I didn't bring him here for that. They wanted him healed. You can imagine Jesus' disciples slightly embarrassed by the situation. Hey, it's it's all right. Okay, he'll he'll get to the real thing in a moment. It's all right. Jesus, legs. Sort the legs out. Come on. You know, you can imagine there's a slight bit of kind of tension there. 
But of course, this is no mistake. Jesus is showing us here man's greatest need. It's a matter of priority. It's not like Jesus wasn't fully aware of the man's other needs and difficulties. Uh, he, he would have very much understood without an NHS, without a welfare state. The man had a life which was tough, very tough. But look how Jesus views this man. And if you like, I'm, I'm, I'm trying by that to say, um, why don't you think about how you view each other, uh, each of us, and how we view our friends and our colleagues as well. See, Jesus sees beyond the transients. Jesus sees beyond and through the paralysis. Jesus sees beyond, you see, any of our difficulties in life, any of those things that we find so hard and really kind of big disasters of life, you know, the cancer, the AIDS, the homelessness, he sees through that. Perhaps it would sound better if I just said Jesus sees deeper. He sees deeper into the root of all the problems of the world. He sees to the very heart of this man and the very heart of you and I. And what does he see? He sees that priority in our lives. The priority is our forgiveness of our sin. Take heart, son, he says. Your sins are forgiven. Just remember for a moment where we've come from in Matthew's Gospel. I said somewhat in the introduction. Recognize the picture that has been painted so far. Jesus has overcome. He's demonstrated power over this world. He's restored different elements of the broken world that we see around us. So he's overcome sickness in the verses um, 1 to 17 of chapter 8. The natural disaster of the furious squall that came up on, on the Sea of Galilee. And, he's, and then he, the one we've missed out, he's demonstrated his authority over the demon-possessed man in the, Gar- in, um, in the Garadines uh, region there. He's showing us that one day he's going to put all of that right. What we get in Matthew chapter 8 so far is a glimmer of what is to come. What is to come when he establishes his eternal kingdom, restoring our broken world? And what we should have gathered so far in Matthew chapter 8 is that Jesus is the one who is king over that eternal kingdom. So a paralyzed man is placed in front of him. We think initially that he's simply going to paint another little portion of this picture to show that he is the king and that he can restore this broken world. But no, this time, this like crowning little miracle here, um, he doesn't just look at the symptoms of the broken world. Now he goes to the heart of the problem of this broken world. And that is our sin. A few years ago, I was, uh, I was telling Tom about this the other day. A few years ago, I was uh, moving a few slow cookers. You know, those things at the back of my car. Um, and, and they were full. My wife had been cooking green Thai curry for about 150 people. We moved from, from our house to a church building. And so I put all these slow cookers in the back of the car, thinking, great. And then I, sh- I was in a bit of a rush, so I kind of shot off. And um, I hit a speed bump. At a pace that you'd expect, kind of like a man being chased by the mafia would hit it. I landed, 
I exaggerate a slight bit, but you know what I mean. I kind of landed off the speed bump, and my head would nearly hit the steering wheel with regret as I could hear sort of squelching around the back of my car all this green Thai curry juice that had come out of these slow cookers. Um, it was just absolutely soaked in the stuff. And I did everything I possibly could to scoop up this juice. I didn't put it back in. Don't worry. Uh, I put it down in the drains and so on um, to, to get it off the carpet at the back of the car. But if you ever had the privilege in travelling in the previous car that we have to the one we have now, um, you would have never um, got away from the aroma of kind of slightly rotting coconut juices and a bit of kind of Thai curry stuff. It was especially beautiful on a hot summer's day. But what, I, what did I do to sort out the problem? My solution was to purchase innumerable kind of air fresheners from Halfords and sort of litter them around this, um, this car to cover up the smell. But however many I purchased, the problem never went away. It was always there. Now, when we sold the car, it was very interesting. Because, we, we, you know, these people came around to view the car and they, was, they would look at all the records and say, yeah, it's always been serviced at a VW garage, it's brilliant, below average miles, everything was perfect, ticked every box. But then I was like, why is this not selling? And every time they would say something like this, very politely, the interior is in need of some kind of care. I knew exactly what they were talking about. I see, I hadn't got to the heart of the problem. And I could cover it up again and again. But it never dealt with the real issue. I had to have, have the car actually probably valeted and you know, chemically cleaned at the back it before we could sell it. I had to really deal with the problem and not cover it up. And whatever we face in this life, it could be disease for those in Ethiopia at the moment. It, it's real problems with famine, aren't there? In Libya, there's social unrest. Um, or it could be more personal issues. Whatever the problem we face in life, These are just symptoms of the main problem. And that is what Jesus sees as he looks down at this man, unable to walk. He sees a man who has turned his back on him. A sinner, basically, the Bible describes him as. And that is the problem that we all need dealing with. And that is man's, our greatest need. Jesus here is he's forgiving sin. Sin is... What we're ashamed of, sometimes, sometimes not. Things that we've said and done which are contrary to what God requires and and longs for us. Uh, Sometimes it is just pure hostility to God, isn't it? We know what God wants and we sort of stick two fingers up and say, I don't want to go your way. But sometimes it's just that cool apathy towards God, ignoring him, saying, I know what I'm going to do in my life. I don't want to listen to you. Whichever way, sin is rebellion and the Bible clearly shows us it deserves judgment. And we're all guilty. You try and sell a car that stinks of curry. If you ignore the problem, you will one day and rightly, justly, suffer the consequences for just trying to cover it up. You just won't sell a car. I face that. If you ignore God and if your friends ignore God... And we all do that to some extent, don't we? We will all face God's just judgment for that sin, that rebellion against him, for ignoring and rejecting him. And can you see why Jesus is showing us that the priority for us all is the forgiveness 
of that rebellion, that sin. I, I don't know if you can imagine someone on death row in America. You know, they've got those tiny cells, they've got pretty awful food, I guess, and all they can hope for in the future is, is a chair that will hasten their death or, you know, that kind of thing. And you ask them what their greatest need is, what would they say? Do you think they'd ask for a bigger cell with some colours that match their palette? Probably not. Would they ask for, you know, I'd like a jacuzzi in the corner, you know, that would kind of make the last few days a bit nicer. A, a few more channels on the satellite TV. I don't think so. I think someone on death row, the one thing that they want, their greatest need, is they want forgiveness, pardon. Having rejected God, I suppose it's as though we live on death row. We live in this world and there are many problems that we might face. The effects of sin in the world are around us all the time and are like the prison cell as we await judgment day. So you see, if we grasp that, then nothing can matter more than receiving forgiveness, pardon from God. I don't know if you believe that. Do we look at this man as Jesus looked at this man? Do we look at our friends as Jesus looked at his friends, seeing our greatest need, the need for forgiveness? Uh, Try and make it personal for a moment. Test yourself. A hypothetical thing here, but pray it may never happen. But imagine the phone rings tonight. And someone someone calls you and says, you know, someone in your family, a a close loved one, perhaps your mum, your dad, even your wife or your husband is, you know, is really suffering. Maybe has a a terminal illness that might shorten their life, you know, something that might shorten their life. It, It could be someone really close to you. Can you imagine that happening? I have to ask you, think hypothetically, we pray this may never happen, but what do you want for someone in that situation? Do you want healing or forgiveness? Of course you want both, don't you? But which do you want the most? Think about AIDS situation in Africa, you know, Bill Gates' foundation. They're planning $1.5 billion to helping out AIDS victims with medical research. And that is a wonderful, good thing, okay? But what do you think Africa needs the most? A miracle cure or the forgiveness of sin? Oh, we can list for hours, couldn't we? All the, the issues around the world at the moment. We could list... For hours, all the problems and and the issues in our lives at the moment, whether it's in relationships or jobs or lack of jobs or illness or or our health, whatever it could be, we could list for hours all the problems around us in our culture. But Jesus is showing that all of those things are just symptoms of a deeper problem. He's not saying that they aren't important. They do matter. They matter to you and I. We feel the burden of them all the time. But they are symptoms of a deeper problem. And for all of us here, and for all the people out here in in Earlsfield, and for all of those folks that you'll see in your office tomorrow, those people you'll chat to, the priority and the absolute priority, the deepest need for us all, is the forgiveness of our sins. What happens when you begin to recognise that in your life? 
I think you begin to see people differently, don't you? You begin to see yourself differently because you think much less of yourself and some of the issues that you face in your life. And you begin to think more of Jesus, the one who can forgive. We begin to think less of our small problems, even if it's an illness or maybe our relationship status that we don't particularly like. Or our work problems. And we begin to think more of our biggest problem, namely our sin. And so then we can thank us and serve our Saviour. I guess looking forward to just a couple of months, uh, many of us will be looking at, to Christmas, for example. We've got guest services coming up here. And we'll be looking at, with some kind of dread towards who am I going to invite? Who could I possibly come to that? You know, we've got a Christianity Explore course studying Cafe Nero in the centre of Earlsfield in, in January. And you think, oh no, who, who's going to come? And I'm dreading that. Some of you might not even want to come to those things for fear of being seen, not to bring people. You know, and the shame and, the, and all those kind of things. But I want to encourage you through this passage to see that we need to look with Jesus' eyes at those that we might invite Don't look at their peripheral needs of their life. Look at their eternal needs. Their biggest problems. And that, like all of us, is our sin. And in so doing, you'll begin to recognise your own sin. And therefore, begin to humbly do the work of inviting people. We need to start praying now, don't we, to invite our friends so that they might come and hear the gospel. I suppose what we do is we think of inviting people to church at Christmas or other times. What we do will depend on our view of Jesus and how big we view him. Having thought about man's greatest need, let's look at the solution. It's the answer. We've looked at it already, really. It's, it's Jesus, isn't it? Obviously. Because he alone can forgive sin. Go on with me in the passage of Cam, read from the beginning of verse 2. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. The teachers of the law here, uh, they see this man in front of them. He's claiming to forgive sins. And that is something that they would have been very clear as teachers of the Bible, uh, the Old Testament. They would have been very clear that only God can forgive sin alone. Just to illustrate that a bit, imagine if you're serving coffee at church tonight and um, John, the lovely John Wong, you know, mild-mannered janitor, there he is. He he got in a bit of a strop with you because, uh, you know, you've given him two sugars and not one. You've given him semi-skimmed and not skimmed. I mean, you can imagine this. John getting a big strop about that kind of thing. He's that kind of fellow. And and so aggravated did John become about this that he punched you on the nose and and broke your nose. (laughs) Obviously, it's a very possible scenario. Imagine then that as you're holding your bleeding nose, you know, because John, you've not given him two lumps of sugar and only one. um, You know, I bound up to you and say, oh, it's all right, John. I forgive you. And you'll be stood there going, I'm the one that's got the bleeding nose. You can't forgive him. Only I can do it. I'm, I'm the one who's got blood pouring down my face. You see, only the offended party can forgive. See, we've already uh, said that sin is fundamentally a rejection of God. So, you see, 
It's only God who can forgive. He's the offended party. But here we have Jesus forgiving. So that means, does it, that they are right? He's a blasphemer? Is Jesus only a man pretending to be God? If he is, then probably should reject him. Or, Jesus is not just a man, but he is God. Fully God and fully man. You see, what, what this story does is it kind of prizes you, but you, you can't sit on the fence here. You can't be kind of in spiritual Switzerland at, at this point. You either stand with the teachers and the law and say, he's just a man, therefore a blasphemer, or you lie on the mat, paralysed by your sin, and you ask him for forgiveness. By the only one who can forgive, seemingly. The offended one. God. See, what this is pointing you towards is only God can forgive. And Jesus, therefore, is God. It comes to our second point. I've really gone through a lot of it already. Only God's, God's son, Jesus, can forgive. You see, Jesus is the one with the right and the ability of God himself to forgive sins. I, I, I suppose we have to ask ourselves at this point, as we look at the passage here, do you want that? Do you want forgiveness for your sins? Do you want it for your friends and for your families? Do you, does your life demonstrate this priority in any way? Do your words and actions, your use of money, use of time, demonstrate that you fully grasp that Jesus, this man, is God and is the only one who can satisfy and meet our deepest needs? That is the forgiveness of our sin. And what the beauty is, we have time to demonstrate that priority. See, it is worth investing in friendships. It's worth loving the people in your office, spending time with them, making sure that they see in you a, a life that is representative of Jesus and what he has done for you. Many of us, I guess, hold people at arm's length sometimes. We're afraid of what they might think of our relationship with Jesus. If they get too close, they might see a bit of hypocrisy there. Or the, other, the flip side of that, sometimes... We hold people at arm's length because we think if they get a bit close, they might think we're a bit fundamental and a bit cultish and a bit crazy. Yeah? Well, Jesus has come and there is time. If you go back to chapter 8, verse 29, the demons, we haven't gone to that. They say, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? You see, they recognize there will be a time uh, of just judgment. They're future orientated there. But for now, you see, we live in a time where forgiveness is on offer through Jesus. And the beauty is we are couriers of that good news. So we do need to engage in friendships in the world, not to be moulded by them. But we must love our colleagues, love our neighbours and our friends so that they might one day have the privilege of uh, hearing this good news of the forgiveness of sin that we all need. It's our greatest need. Jesus is the only one who can forgive sin and he proves it brilliantly in our, point, in our third point. The proof that Jesus can forgive sin. Look at verse 4 with me if you can. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat 
and go home. And the man got up and went home. Jesus has one thing in mind here, doesn't he? So that you may know that the Son of Man, is a title he uses, we'll look at that another time, that he has authority to forgive sins now. Have a look at this, he says. So what he does here is it's a brilliant little thing. He, just, he does the harder thing to say, doesn't it? Uh, to prove the easier thing to say. Because you know, any of us could say, ah, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. That's very easy to say because no one can prove otherwise. It, it's, it's, if you like, it's invisible. No one can say, oh, you haven't forgiven my sins. Or you have forgiven my sins. It's very easy to say. It's much harder to say, isn't it? Get up off your mat and walk. Because every one of us could say he has got up or he hasn't got up. The the proof is visible. So Jesus, you see, he does the harder thing to say to show he can do and has authority to do the easier thing to say. But both are miracles and impossible for man alone. So he heals the man to demonstrate that he is and has the authority of God alone. He proves he can sort out sin, forgive sin as only God can by sorting out the symptom of sin in this man, namely the paralysis. See, it's important to note that Jesus, when he comes to this world, he doesn't promise to heal us now of all illness or famine or disaster, but he does come to show us and demonstrate to us that he has power and authority over all things. And supremely to forgive man's greatest problem, namely our sin, our rebellion against God. Isn't that amazing? That is utterly amazing. When God came to this earth as Jesus, he came to forgive and not judge, as we all deserve. One day he will come to judge, but he came to forgive. I don't know if you remember, um, it's been the, the last kind of report of the Enniskillen bombing back in 1987. It's just sort of come out. And there's a little story in the press recently of Gordon Marie Wilson, father and 20-year-old daughter. The IRA bombed, if you remember, in Enniskillen back in 1987. The daughter died in the explosion. But when this, this guy emerged from hospital um, after being patched up and so on, he gave this statement, and it was in the... In the Times recently, he says, I have no desire for revenge or retaliation. I forgive the bombers. It's still the shock statement of the whole kind of uh, disaster at that time. And it's the thing you least expect to hear, isn't it? Of a man who's just been so personally offended and has so much hurt and loss in his life. His, his 20-year-old daughter has died. Well, take that so much further. Jesus, the judge and king of the world, the one who we all have so personally and so amazingly rejected and turned our backs on in our sin, well, he should come and rightly just and rightly and justly judge and punish us. But he comes, if you like, early uh, in love and in so doing offers us the forgiveness of our sins. He sees through all our sickness, our sadness, our frustrations. He sees through everything in our lives. And with his, 
with his heart, he understands, but he doesn't, problem, he doesn't promise to deal with the symptoms of our lives. He goes for the real problem, the sin. How do we respond to that? That amazing gift. Look at verse 8 with me just to close. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. They praised God who had given such authority to men. It's just the the appropriate response, isn't it? To praise God. It's to do the right thing, I suppose. Praise him for the forgiveness he offers in Christ's death uh, on the cross. For our sin, in our place. Praise God that he has dealt with our greatest need. The forgiveness of our sin. Praise God in the way that we live. Praise God in the way that we are with friends and colleagues. That we might show them their greatest need. So that they might be forgiven and trust in Jesus' death on the cross. If you cannot praise God tonight for all that he has done in Jesus. In bringing that forgiveness and offering that. Why don't you look around. Perhaps firstly at yourself. But look around at those around us in our world. Look at their greatest need. And what we see tonight very clearly is the greatest need of all of us. Is for God to forgive us. To restore us. And that is only, only on offer in this man, Jesus Christ, who is fully God. Let me pray as we close.